And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Happy Sunday morning. Stay cool, won't you? Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension, Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com. All the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at twitter.com slash farmerfred daily garden tips. I think today's tip is water your containerized plants. Uh, what else? Um, get growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page where the sad saga of Corona, the corpse flower at Roseville High School, has unfolded. Thousands of people waiting for this corpse flower to open it didn't open. Why didn't it open? We'll be talking about that a little bit later on in the program. Uh, what else? Uh, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, digital. Yes. <laughs> oh, my heavens. Uh, and we'll answer your garden questions, too. Send your emails to fred at farmerfred.com. Phone them in. 916-576-1578 or toll-free 866-331-8255. And again, the email address, fred at farmerfred.com. I think the goal today is just stay cool. I think the goal this week is just stay cool. Seven days in a row, it looks like, of triple-digit temperatures. As uh, summer goes into its final stages, last uh, few weeks of summer, we will have these days of triple-digit temperatures, and uh, we may break some records today. Judging by where we are right now, here it is just a little after 10 a.m. Uh, listen to some of these temperatures that were recorded uh, just a few minutes ago around the area. Uh, in Vacaville right now, 90 degrees, Fairfield 85, Marysville 86. Out at Mather in Rancho, 86 degrees, International Airport 85 degrees, when temperatures like this are happening this early, you know it's going to be a hot day. And there's not going to be much cooling at night either. That's uh, the part of no delta breeze. So we are in this inversion layer where it's just going to stay warm for the next seven days or so. And there is a heat warning posted. The expected high in Sacramento today is 107. And uh, we may just break some records with uh, temperatures throughout Northern California today because of the heat and this uh, heat advisory actually it's a heat warning that's in effect from 11 a.m today until monday night among the records that could be broken today the downtown there excuse me the executive airport sacramento forecast temperature is 107 the record for this date 103 so that record probably will fall in um uh, Red Bluff, 109 is the forecast. 109 is their record. That just might fall. Stockton has an expected high of 107. Their record, 104. Modesto's forecast today, 106. Their record, 104. And it uh, looks like Redding will stay cool. 108 is their forecast high. 110 is their record. Well, relatively cool anyway. So what exactly is it when there is a heat warning Posted. What is a heat warning? Well, obviously it means it's going to be hot and stay hot. And from a people standpoint, there are a lot of things you should do with uh, temperatures ranging in our area from 100 to 110 degrees. With overnight lows, this is the, the sad part, in the 70s and maybe even the low 80s. When I got up this morning, it was 80 degrees in Folsom. What's up with that? 
moderate to high risk of heat-related illness in temperatures like today's, especially for sensitive groups, the elderly, the children, sick people, and animals. And I, I'm pretty sure I belong to three of those four groups. An excessive heat warning means that a prolonged period of dangerously hot temperatures will occur. The combination of hot temperatures and humidity will combine to create dangerous situations in which heat illnesses are likely. What do you do? You drink plenty of fluids, stay in an air-conditioned room, stay out of the sun. If uh, you're working in the yard right now, you ought to be thinking about wrapping things up over the next 45 minutes or so, so you're not working in temperatures much above 90 degrees or so. Work early. You know, normally you'd say, okay, and, and work late. The problem with that is because it is late August, sunset comes much earlier. 7.42 p.m. is sunset. And if you follow temperatures, if you're a temperature nerd, you know that even at 7.30 at night on a day like today, the temperature will be in the 90s, if not 100 degrees or so. So you almost don't want to advise even working in the evening, except at least you won't be in the direct sun. There is that benefit. So basically, drink plenty of water. Don't forget your pets. Don't forget your livestock. Make sure they have shade. Make sure they have water. All right? And then maybe check up on relatives and neighbors, the, you know, the hermits on the block. Make sure they're okay. Um, and young children and pets should never be left unattended in vehicles under any circumstances. I don't know why we have to keep saying that. You'd think common sense would teach you that, but no. All right. Maybe crack the windows open on your car a little bit. Now, what about your garden? What, what happens when you've got seven days in a row of 100-degree temperatures forecast like there is for today? Earlier uh, over on the KFBK Garden Show, I talked about the precautions to take with your containerized garden. Uh, with plants in containers, especially in full sun, they may need watering twice a day. Make sure they stay hydrated. Maybe you're going to go away for Labor Day weekend next weekend. If so... You may want to move those plants into a shady location or at least group them together and maybe surround the outside of the pots with some protection, maybe cardboard on the outside, uh, just sort of like a wall of cardboard or a wall of hay bales or something just to keep the pots from absorbing the direct rays of the sun. The soil in a containerized plant on a hot day can easily get to 140 degrees. And one of the first reactions of soil to those kind of temperatures, it retracts, it, it constricts, it gets tighter together, it pulls away from the sides of the pot just in its vain effort to preserve soil moisture. And then when you go to water the pot, the water just flows down the side between the soil and the pot. So if you're watering your containerized plants, you see water coming out immediately, you know something is wrong, and you may want to either add more soil or loosen up the soil that's in there, and then water it again. And again, on a hot day like today for containerized plants, twice a day waterings not uncommon. Now, what about for plants in the ground? Well, that's a little different story. You want to check the soil moisture. Don't go by what the surface looks like. If the surface is dry, but if you dig down eight inches and the soil is moist, then really that's where the roots are. You don't have a problem. So you don't want to really saturate your soil too much. So check the moisture of your soil of your garden, not your pots, but your garden, uh, before you add more water. Now, if you start seeing plants starting to wilt in midday, there was an old theory, which has been proved wrong, that it was a defensive mechanism by the plant uh, to preserve water and to just wait till the morning, and if the plant was still wilted in the morning, give it water. Uh, 
Well, now the thinking is, if you see a wilted plant in the afternoon, give it water. Don't wait until morning, because it's suffering right then, and by morning it may be too late. And I can't stress enough the importance of checking soil moisture in your small containers. Maybe you went to the nursery last weekend and bought six packs of cool season annuals or cool season vegetables, and you haven't gotten around to planting them yet. Make sure they have plenty of water. Move them to the shade because those little itty-bitty amounts of soil dry out really quickly. So you may want to put them in a protected location. and make. I would keep them in eyesight of a window of your house that you pass by frequently just to remind yourself to give them a drink of water if that window is looking out onto a shady area. That would be very important. Uh, yeah, and you don't want to do much planting this time uh, when the temperatures are of 100 degrees or so. So you may want to delay your cool season planting for a while as well. And I can't stress to you the importance of using mulch, three to four inches of an organic mulch, not rocks, but something that can protect the soil, feed the soil, keep weeds from coming up, and also preserve soil moisture. Very vital. So get in the habit of, even on your containerized plants, adding a couple of inches of mulch around your containerized plants. All right. When we come back, you know what's bugging a lot of people this year are gophers. We have some tips on gopher control, and that's coming up on Get Growing right here on Talk 650 KSTE and KSTE.com. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Pocket gophers can be serious pests, particularly in young fruit tree and nut orchards. While herbaceous cover crops are their preferred food, pocket gophers will also feed on the bark of tree crowns and roots. And when those cover crops or weeds dry up, gophers' bark consumption may become extensive enough to girdle and kill young trees or even reduce the vigor of older trees. It's been estimated that gopher damage to nut crops in California can be as much as a 6% loss of revenue. How do you control gophers? And more so, how do you not control gophers? We're talking with Roger Baldwin. He's a wildlife specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology at UC Davis. And Roger, there have been all sorts of attempts to control gophers by many means over the years. Years, and I guess uh, maybe we should start off with what doesn't work when it comes to controlling gophers. Oh, good question. Um, there are a variety of different um, strategies that have been considered over the years, and as you would, um, as you have alluded to, some work relatively well, some not so well. Some of the ones that um, don't work very well, uh, for example, probably the, the question I get most often when I'm out giving extension presentations is. Uh, whether or not the use of bubblegum and burrow systems will work uh, for reducing gopher populations. Uh, strange as that, that may seem, uh, somebody apparently had indicated that that works uh, many decades ago, and, and it actually has been tested in a couple of different situations, and, and I can assure you that bubblegum has never tested um, as an effective approach for, for managing pocket gophers. Uh, there's lots of uh, repellents that are marketed for gophers, and at this point in time, we have not seen any uh, positive um, uh, feedback from the use of repellents uh, for keeping uh, gophers out of particularly um, large areas, but even smaller areas uh, to that extent. 
Um, sometimes exclusion is considered for use to keep gophers out of out of areas, whether it be um, fencing buried underground or even wire baskets around newly planted trees. Um, wire baskets can reduce um, damage to root systems, but it's just not typically um, going to be a cost-effective or practical approach over an orchard-type system. It's something that would only be used um, in and around um, homes and, and some of those kinds of areas where you're just planting a few trees. Another approach that's discussed quite a bit is the use of uh, owl boxes and, and other predators to control uh, rodent populations. It's something that continues to be looked at. At this point in time, we're uncertain as to how effective that approach is. It does appear that if gopher populations are fairly substantial, that uh, the use of owls and, and other predators probably are not going to be enough to reduce gopher populations in a particular area, uh, in large part due to um, the uh, reproductive output of a lot of rodent species, such as gophers. Uh, we're hopeful that maybe in some situations where gopher populations are already relatively low, that there could be some benefit uh, from from owls. Um, uh, through the use of owl boxes to keep those populations at relatively low levels, but we're still not certain on that. We're continuing uh, to look along those lines. I imagine that when you were talking about repellents, that would include uh, gas cartridges, smoke bombs, uh, devices that make sounds or vibrations or electromagnetic devices. So for repellents, we're generally considering uh, chemical repellents, so these would be things that you would, might potentially spray on the ground with the hopes of, of um, pushing buffers out of certain areas, and those have not historically tested very effective. The other thing that we would be considering in that category would be uh, the vibrating stakes and things along those lines that you see um, sold at certain stores. Those have also not tested all that well. Um, as far as the gas cartridges and, and some of the other um, devices for which you're introducing a toxic gas into, into the burrow system, those are considered fumigants, and they're a different category um, that we can talk about if you want. Talk a little bit about the burrow itself. How extensive are a, is a gopher burrow system? How far does it run? It varies quite a bit. Uh, they can uh, be pretty extensive systems. The Probably the the, the bigger question is, is you know, how are these systems set up and how do they change over time? Because they can run um, many feet, maybe up to 120 feet in, in one particular direction sometimes, although that's you know, certainly on the extreme end. Realistically, what you generally have are uh, several different layers of tunnel systems. You kind of have an upper layer, uh, which is usually within 6 to 10 inches of the surface of the soil, and those are the um, more short-term tunnel systems where they're digging around and looking for food sources. Uh, then they usually have some deeper tunnel systems, which are a little more permanent. Uh, they're certainly there for a longer period of time, might be connected to some nesting chambers, um, and, and other associated structures like that. The thing about gophers is they're constantly creating new tunnels, and so when they're done with old parts of their systems, they'll backfill those tunnel systems up and continue to dig new tunnel systems. So they're constantly digging throughout the landscape, moving around. Now, I know that flood irrigation may or may not work, but what about a really wet winter like we just had? Now, I think that would be a double-edged sword. Yeah, they might be flooded out temporarily, but the accompanying new green growth above may spur them on to increase their populations quickly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's never 
been able to, we've never been able to officially test, you know, what kind of true impact that has. But generally speaking, we know that flood irrigation is uh, a fairly decent tool for managing gophers because it generally forces them up to the surface or they drown. And when they're forced up to the surface, then they're susceptible to uh, some of the natural predators that are out there because they don't have avoidance strategies to get away from that. And so when you have these heavy rainfall events, you're going to get a lot of flooding in a lot of these fields. And, of course, many fields were completely flooded. And so that likely um, eliminated gophers from that particular field. If you have fields that are, are partially flooded, part of it, then probably that forces, you know, it, it probably gets rid of some of those gophers and forces the rest onto some of those other outlying areas. And so, yeah, it may do some of the work uh, for the farmer or grower in a particular area by lowering populations in those areas. But of course, once that water recedes, now you've got um, soil moisture uh, that um, is, is really beneficial for, for weeds and, and, and crops in, in these different cropping systems. And so now you have an abundance of food, plus you have lower um, gopher densities from that flood event, which means there's less pressure on those food sources. So they'll have larger litters, and those litters will survive at a greater rate. And so you could get a real proliferation of gophers after that event. And so it's, it's a real give-and-take situation there, I think. We talked about how they can damage uh tree crops, the fruit trees, the nut trees. They can also, gophers can gnaw on plastic irrigation lines, and and those uh, tunnels, of course, can allow irrigation water to just bypass roots and go on down the tunnel. Is there an effective control for protecting a drip irrigation system from gophers? Yeah, you're exactly right. There's been a real um, desire to move to subsurface drip irrigation in a lot of different cropping systems because it uses less water, and of course we're really concerned about water usage here in California. But the problem is that if gophers are present in an area, the subsurface strip is put in at about the same depth that the gopher tunnel systems occur at. And so as the gophers dig around, they come across these these drip tapes, and then they start chewing on them. And, and those leaks are really difficult and costly to repair. Unfortunately, the, the answer is no. We don't have any great strategies for mitigating uh, that damage right now. We've looked at um, repellents. Uh, potentially being forced through those systems to try to deter um, gophers from, you know, hanging out in the certain areas and chewing on that drip tape, and that hasn't proven effective yet. Um, perhaps there will eventually be a repellent developed that, that might work. Uh, we've looked at, um, uh, you know, trying to keep gophers out of certain areas with exclusion fencing. That hasn't worked as well. Currently, about the only strategy is just to, to stay on top of the gopher populations and remove them so that they don't build up to levels where they're causing damage to the drip tape. But, you know, with drip tape, it's it's almost a zero-tolerance policy, even if you gophers can cause quite a bit of damage out there. And so it becomes costly to try to remove those gophers to keep the drip tape functional. Do they tend to damage half-inch irrigation lines and micro-sprinklers less? Yeah, so those structures that are above ground are not typically damaged um, much by gophers. They are damaged, of course, by a lot of other rodent species, such as ground squirrels, mice, and voles. But gophers spend the vast majority of their life below ground, and so they generally do not come above ground and chew on those structures. When we come back, Roger Baldwin has some effective gopher control strategies. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. 
We're talking with Roger Baldwin, wildlife specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology with UC Davis. We are attempting to control gophers today out in the orchard. So, Roger, let's talk about some effective controls for managing that gopher population, which can reach as high as 30 to 40 per acre. I would I would think that uh, you have to go back to the traps. Yeah, there's a variety of different strategies that um, can work for gopher control. Uh, those include um, the use of trapping. Uh, there's a variety of different traps out there, and in fact, a previous colleague of mine wrote a book on on the different traps that have been patented um, over the last um, 100 plus years, and it's probably an, an inch thick. So there's certainly a large number of traps that have been developed and, and tried over the years. One of the traps that uh, we've tested that probably has worked um, the best for us is a trap called the gophinator trap. It's worked really well. Um, it's a good size um, uh, to fit into the tunnel system. Uh, some of the traps are a little larger. This one's a little bit smaller, and so it's easier to fit into the tunnel system uh, and seems to catch gophers at, at, at a very high rate, particularly larger gophers, um, which are responsible for a lot of reproduction out there. So we certainly want to uh, eliminate those larger gophers uh, from the population if we want to have effective control. And, you know, based on a lot of the research that we've done over the years, trapping certainly um, is very effective. We've seen uh, 90 plus percent removal rates after um, two trapping periods through a particular field, and in some cases, uh, after three trapping periods, we've been able to completely remove gophers from fields, and that's with densities of 30 to 40 gophers uh, per acre. So trapping certainly is a very effective tool uh, for getting rid of of gophers um, from fields. Now the the big question then is: Is it cost effective? Uh, the short answer is, I think in many cases, uh, yes, it, it definitely is, but it does depend on, on soil types. Those soil types that are more conducive for easier digging, um, particularly those with shallower tunnel systems, those that have more sandy or loamy-type soils, um, trapping is a very cost-effective strategy, as cost-effective or more cost-effective than most of the other um, techniques we've looked at. If you're dealing with heavy clay soils, though, particularly once those soils start to dry out, then it becomes more difficult to, to probe, find those tunnel systems and dig down and set traps. And so in those systems, it's probably not as cost-effective as other strategies. But regardless, trapping probably should be a tool that that's anybody who's interested in, in gopher control should be considering as part of an integrated approach. Now, you mentioned the gophernator, uh, pincer-type traps, and that uh, is probably well-known, along with the Maccabee and the mm-hmm. cinch uh, traps. But uh, the Maccabee has had a problem over the years of uh, larger gophers sort of dragging the, the trap but down further down the burrow, and you never catch it. One what, of what, what we think the the problems with the um, with the Maccabee trap is is kind of how it captures the gopher. It kind of has an upward thrusting motion, and it, it, in so doing, the larger gophers we think it's kind of pushing sort of out of the trap, and it catches them a little bit, but not completely, and then they're able to eventually pull free from the trap. Uh, the gopher trap has a different capturing mechanism, which we think holds them in there um, to a greater rate. But regardless of the trap that you use, you really do have to stake the traps down because um, if you don't, they can back up a little bit into that tunnel system and then you will lose the the trap in that capacity so staking traps down is certainly an important strategy regardless of of the trap that you're using 
So that handy grower that has a lot of Maccabee traps around uh, probably could modify those uh, Maccabee traps uh, with a cable. Yeah, so we did do a, a research project here a couple years back where we looked at um, adding a, a tether-type cable around the jaws of the trap. Uh, the general purpose of this is um, because we think the gopher is, is able to pull, the larger gophers are able to pull out of those traps, uh, by adding that tether to that trap, it keeps them from being able to pull out of the trap. And so we did see an added benefit of including that to um, some of the standard Maccabees. Now, there's a caveat to that in that um, if you're dealing with smaller juvenile gophers, uh, and you'll know that you're dealing with them when you when you have tunnel systems that are smaller, if the trap won't completely slide down into that tunnel system without scraping the sides of that tunnel system, then it's probably a juvenile gopher. And for those juvenile gophers, uh, it was actually better to use the traps without that tether. The tether kind of got in the way of the jaws of those traps when you were dealing with those smaller tunnel systems. So we would carry a combination of some of the Maccabees with the cable on it and some of the Maccabees without it. And we'd use the ones without the cable on those smaller tunnel systems and use the ones with the, the cable on it for those larger tunnel systems, and that seemed to work pretty well. Now, there is a fairly new trap out on the market. I don't think it's been uh, subject to any uh, UC trials, but it's called the gopher hawk, and from what I understand, uh, there are a lot of farmers and growers who are very happy with it. Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. There is a newer trap called the gopher hawk. Um, it has not, to, to my knowledge, been tested yet, so I don't have any real potential feedback on it from that perspective. What I can tell you is that... Um, uh, the trap design is as such to where when you find a tunnel system, uh, you use part of the trap uh, to poke a hole into that tunnel system, and then you insert the trap uh, directly into that tunnel system so that it's vertical, sticking up. And um, when it's activated, there's a certain color, and then when it's triggered, I think uh, uh, a yellow part of the trap shows up. So you can basically walk around and scan your traps from a distance and be able to tell if they're activated or not. And they're theoretically supposed to be a little bit quicker to set because all you have to do is poke a hole and then slide the trap down into it. Uh, so, you know, if, if they work, there I think is some potential advantages to them. They just haven't been tested and uh, so we're not really quite certain how they stack up to some of the pincher-style traps yet. I would think, too, that be it baits or traps, don't waste your time uh, putting that bait or a trap down an old gopher mound. Look for the, the fresh mounds to indicate current activity. You're absolutely right. Regardless of the tool that you use, you always want to find the freshest mounting activity because that is going to be associated with a a location where the gopher is still present at. If you find old bounds, the gopher may or may not still be in that part of the tunnel system. And if it's pretty old, the odds are pretty high that they actually are not in that part of the tunnel system anymore. So um, always looking for that freshest mounding activity is, is the best strategy for getting whatever treatment um, approach you want to use to, to remove that gopher. Is there anything you wanted to add to this? The one thing that I would mention when it comes to gopher control is that uh, uh, you should consider utilizing an integrated approach. Um, that means incorporating multiple strategies. And there are a variety of different um, ways that, that this can be constructed. Uh, one example is, is you know, using habitat modification. Uh, there are certain plants that gophers prefer, and those plants are usually either nitrogen-fixing plants or plants with large fleshy taproots. And so if you have cover crops planted that have clovers and, and um, 
various legumes, or maybe you have uh, lots of nuts edge um, in and around some of these different cropping systems. You know, those are preferred food sources for gophers, and so eliminating some of those preferred food sources can lower carrying capacity, and, and that can lower the amount of effort it takes to, to um, uh, uh, manage pocket gopher populations in that area. When it comes to managing um, these gopher populations, what you really want to try to do is get those populations down to a very low level and then maintain them at a low level. Don't allow those populations to build back up and knock them down again, because that's going to be more costly long-term. If you can maintain them at those low populations throughout the year, that's going to be much more effective and more cost-effective for you as well. Roger Baldwin, wildlife specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology out at UC Davis. Thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Absolutely. Happy to help out. Coming up in a few minutes, it's a garden grappler, your chance to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred prize closet, a clue available at FarmerFred.com. I believe we were uh, talking over on the KFBK Garden Show this morning about some garden tasks to try to accomplish in the fall, such as planting cool season flowers and vegetables. But another big issue that you can take on during the months of September and October, which can save you money on your water bill, is doing some lawn renovation. And a lot of people, when I hear this excuse a lot, I ask people, why do you have your sprinklers on every day? And they say, if I don't water my lawn every day, it turns brown. And I've heard that for, for years and years, I've heard that. And there are a lot of possible culprits for that scenario. Maybe it's compacted or poor soil, slow drainage, the wrong turf type for the area, sloping lawns, uneven coverage by sprinklers, and a lot more. The biggest culprit in lawn problems, I think, is watering a lawn every day. Daily light irrigations cause lawn roots to remain near the surface, and that's where they're more susceptible to damage from things like, oh, I don't know, triple-digit temperatures like today, or cold in the wintertime, as well as uh, your neighborhood dogs coming by, and also uh, lawn diseases. And what people don't realize is what's going on right below the surface. You may see green on top, but those lawn roots may not be getting much water because of a layer of thatch buildup. Thatch is the layer of living and dead stems, roots, stolons, and rhizomes that are located between the green blades of grass and the soil surface. Now, usually a thin layer of thatch, and that's about a half inch thick or less, it, it can be beneficial to a lawn because it helps limit weed germination. It reduces water evaporation, and it also protects lawns from frost or freeze damage. However, if that thatch layer gets too thick, the reverse happens. It can actually prevent water, air, and nutrients from penetrating the soil, and that causes reduced root growth and increases the potential for drought stress. Thatch also favors fungal growth. It can be a home for insect pests, and there are just some varieties of turf that really build up thatch in a hurry, such as Bermuda grass, bent grass, Kentucky bluegrass. They have that creeping growth habit, and they rapidly build up thick thatch layers. But even the, the popular turf-type fescue lawns that are so popular in our area now can build up a thick layer of thatch, even though the grass does look green on the surface. So if you haven't dethatched your lawn in three years or more, September through mid-October is not only the best time to dethatch, but also to aerate, fertilize, and overseed your lawn. How do you do that? This is called a radio tease. Coming up.
I'll tell you some lawn renovation tricks for you that if you really want to save water on your lawn and also to have your lawn looking great for, say, Thanksgiving, you can do it. I'll have those tips for you when we come back to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, when we last left you in this exciting saga of what to do to your lawn in the fall, well, I'll pick up the story here. We talked about the importance of renovating your lawn in September or October, especially if you haven't done it in about three years or more, because any lawn variety can build up thatch. And thatch stops a lot of things, including air and water, from getting to the roots of your lawn. And when that happens, the lawn grows closer to the surface as far as the roots go. And that's where it is more susceptible to things like drought or freezes or disease or damage. So you want your lawn roots to go deep. And one of the ways to do that, one of the best ways, is to do a partial lawn renovation. And in our area of the country here in the mild winter areas of California, September and early October here really are the best times to do it. So if more than 40% of your lawn is in really bad shape, then consider a complete lawn renovation. Uh, If you're listening to this on a podcast uh, in some other parts of the country, spring is also a good time for a lawn makeover. And actually here, fall is the best time. Second best time is spring. And spring here, we're talking March early March for the best time to do that, the second best time to do that. So a complete lawn renovation involves removing all the existing turf, improving the soil, and reconfiguring the sprinkler system to better cover the entire area, as well as choosing the right turf type for your area. Now that sounds like a lot of work. All right, well it is. So instead, maybe let's just do a partial lawn renovation. That involves uprooting the thatch layer, aerating the soil, overseeding the lawn area, then applying a thin layer of mulch to maintain a healthy lawn throughout the coming year. So maybe your lawn does look a bit bedraggled now, and maybe you're already planning for Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe you're having a lot of friends and relatives over come November. If you want your lawn to look fabulous, and I mean fabulous, on Thanksgiving, then that period of time between, say, Labor Day and Columbus Day, or maybe to Halloween, although really Labor Day through mid-October is the best time to do this, is a partial lawn renovation. Here's what you do. Finally, I'm getting around to it. The first step is to cut your lawn as short as possible. Now, that may involve cutting the lawn several times, because if your lawn blade, if your turf blades are too tall, If you put your mower at the lowest setting for the blade, it may not be able to cut through it. So you may have to make several passes in order to get the lawn as short as possible. Then water your lawn thoroughly to soften the soil. I mean thoroughly. Now you may have to cycle the sprinklers through to avoid runoff. That's okay. After you've watered the lawn thoroughly, wait. Wait a day or two. Then that'll give you time to get what you need. A dethatcher, an aerator a bag of starter fertilizer, compost for mulch, lawn seed, a six-pack and snacks or whatever. If I mean, if you've worked in your yard all day, you need energy, right? Okay. Now, what is a dethatcher? Well, the dethatcher can be as simple as an iron rake or as complex as a power dethatcher or what's called a vertical mower. 
and those are available at rental yards. And now would be the time to rent that, put it on the list of uh, make a reservation to get that dethatcher or vertical mower. Dethatchers are fairly easy to use. They're fairly lightweight, and they're like forks going through your lawn, bringing up the turf. Now, remember why you're doing this. You're removing the thatch, and that's layers of dead grass that impede the movement of water and fertilizer and air to the root zone of a lawn. And again, this should be done at least every three years or so. During the dethatching process, you are going to be amazed. By the way, two people doing this is a good idea. One person to operate the dethatcher, bringing up all this thatch, and the other person raking it into a big pile. It's going to look like a stack of hay when you're done, and it's amazing. I remember one time when we were living in Harold, and for whatever reason, I had a 4,000-square-foot lawn and dethatched it, and we brought up about two cubic yards of thatch, dead lawn material. You could use it as mulch later on. But uh, you just can't see that thatch when it's just below the lawn surface. So by bringing it up, it makes you realize, oh, that's why water wasn't getting to the roots of the lawn. So after dethatching, remove the dead grass, and then you want to put the aerator over the lawn aerator. An aerator is a device with sharp, hollow tubes. The hollow tube part is very important because that removes the soil cores that are three to four inches deep. The aeration relieves the soil compaction. It allows air, water, and fertilizer to pass more freely through the soil, stimulating root growth. Now, there are hand aerators available, but they're a lot of work. You may remember an old TV commercial that showed a woman uh, walking through her lawn in sandals that had spikes on them, and the commercial referred to that as aeration. No, that is not aeration. That is compaction. The hollow tubes are what are necessary to remove those cores of soil. The rented roller or power-driven aerifiers do the job much more quickly and effectively. Yes, you will spend a bit more money, but it's a heck of a lot easier uh, to do. All right, so you've dethatched, you've aerated, and your lawn is just going to look totally crappy. It's going to be brown. It's going to be short. It's going to be ugly. Fear not. It's going to get better. So after you've done the dethatching and the aeration, spread a layer of starter fertilizer and lawn seed that closely matches your existing grass over the area. Now, maybe you have a Bermuda grass lawn, in which case you may want to overseed with an annual or a perennial ryegrass. Now, the problem with perennial rye, it tends to get rust in the spring. That's why I like annual rye, that, and it's a lot cheaper. And that, if you have a Bermuda lawn, will keep your lawn green during the winter and spring while the Bermuda grass is brown and dormant. But for a fescue lawn, like most of us have, you want to use a seed that matches the variety that you have. Now, that's kind of hard to do sometimes. And generally speaking, uh, the, the advice is usually anywhere from 2 to 5 pounds per 1,000 square feet that you want to overseed with. So after overseeding, press the seed into the ground with another rental tool called a roller. It is like a big barrel with a handle that you fill with water, all right? And so that basically presses the seed into the ground. So after overseeding, press the seed into the ground with a water-filled roller now, you could rake the seed lightly to make sure it's in contact with the soil, but you then that will make it better as far as the seed having contact with the soil and germinating. Then you finish up by spreading a thin layer of compost over the entire area. The most effective way of that is to get another rental tool, basically, 
called a spreader, which looks like a big cage that you roll across the lawn. It's got a lot of holes in it. You fill that with compost, you roll it across the lawn, and it drops a nice thin layer of compost over the area. All right, so you've done all that. What do you do next? Keep the reseeded lawn area moist. The new seeds will sprout in 7 to 10 days. And that this is the only time you really need to water the lawn every day. In fact, many of your timers will have a new lawn setting where your sprinklers come on maybe three, four, even five times a day for just a couple of minutes or so. And that's the only time you need to water the lawn every day is to keep that seed bed moist until the grass is up and growing. Then set your sprinklers to come on for a period of time that's more appropriate for the weather two or three times a week during the hottest months, once a week during the cooler months when it doesn't rain, and then turn off the system uh, during the rainy season. And uh, when do you cut the lawn then? Well, you wait until it's tall enough to cut, basically. So uh, it, it may seem like a lot of work. But your lawn is going to look great by Thanksgiving. So think about dethatching, aerating, and overseeding your lawn in September or early October. There's a garden grappler on the way. We'll be doing that after the news. And uh, also we're going to be talking about the corpse flower. It's coming up on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred prize closet. All you got to do is mention a flower that you could grow here. Oh, by the way, it has to begin with a letter from the word September. Yes, September begins on Friday. September usually is a harbinger of cooler temperatures, maybe the first smatterings of fall color, and also one of the best times of the year to plant. Early fall is great because the soil is still warm. The days are cooler. Trust me, they will get cooler. The days are shorter. Perfect conditions for reducing stress on newly planted either transplants or even seeds you might plant for uh, cool season vegetables or flowers. So what I want you to do is mention a flower. Not a vegetable, but a flower that you could grow here that begins with a letter from the word September. S-E-P-T-E-M-B-E-R. I guess the good news is there's three E's in there because, as you know, when we do these little uh, spelling tests, if somebody uses a letter, then uh, that letter is gone. Thus, it will be true for the word September. So, for example, if, um, oh, I don't know, if somebody took the B and said Brunfelsia, well, the B would be gone, leaving us with September. So you know how the game is played. Have a backup answer with a different letter. Mention a flower you could grow here that begins with a letter from the word September. The number is to call 576-1578 in the 916 area code. 576-1578. The toll-free number, 866-331-8255. 866-331-8255. By the way, if you're listening to this on a podcast, don't call in. Nobody will be here to answer. <laughs> All right. 576-1578-866-331-8255. Name a flower that you could plant either via seed or via transplant that you'd buy at a nursery. Name a flower you could grow here here being is where you live. That begins with a letter from the word September. All right. Brooks, are you ready? Farmer Fred. 
You know the Garden Grappler is a highlight of my week. Of course I'm ready. I'm sorry. It's the highlight of your week. You have a sad, sad life. I said it's a highlight. Oh, okay. Of my all right. Life. All right. All right. Fine. Hey, it gives me a chance to talk to all of your nice listeners. Well, they're calling, so go answer the phones. All right. Thank you. <laughs> all right. All right. So while you're calling in with an answer, mention a flower you could grow here that begins with a letter from the word September. Uh, let's tackle some of the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. Gloria writes in from Roseville. She says, our daughter and husband bought a house in Roseville. Surprisingly, it has a large backyard. However, it has not shade. It has not shade. I guess that means there is no shade. Uh, so what Gloria is asking is they are wanting to plant a low-maintenance shade tree so the yard can be used during the day. All right, a shade tree. And she says, and this is what they were given for ideas. And I'm looking at this list of trees that uh, her daughter and son-in-law were given. As far And this is a, a pretty good list. So I think this came from maybe the Sacramento Tree Foundation or a landscape designer who knew what they were doing or a master gardener. Uh, the trees that uh, were suggested were a hedge maple, a little leaf linden, a trident maple, the uh, Pacific Sunset uh, elm, I believe, or the Pacific Sunset Maple, I'm not sure which, the Frontier Elm, the Golden Rain Tree, the uh, Bloodwood Japanese Maple, the Chinese Fringe Tree, and the Chitalpa. Well, those are all pretty good selections. Uh, the one exception would be the Chitalpa. And I don't like Chitalpas, I'll tell you why. Many years ago, it became the hot tree. It became the the hip tree to have, Okay. Flowered in the summertime. Everybody loves a summer flowering tree, deciduous tree. A Chitalpa has a lot of problems. It doesn't get that tall, but it gets wide. So it really is not a shade tree in that you could run beneath it and not bump your head into a branch. It tends to send branches all the way down to the bottom. And the problem is, if you prune off those lower branches, it doesn't get that tall. It becomes top-heavy. And it tends to topple. And that's what happened to mine. I planted six of them. Five of them died. Five were sort of knocked over by the wind. They weren't totally knocked over. But I righted them, backed up, staked them, and they died. And the one that survived was getting anthracnose every summer, where the leaves turn yellow. So I, I really don't recommend the Chitalpa. It's not the hot tree anymore. So think of something else. All right. So on this list, let's talk about some of these trees that are on this list. Now, anytime you're choosing a tree for a yard, you have to take into consideration a couple of things. One is how is it going to get watered? Is it going to have its own watering system? Or is it going to be part of the lawn sprinkling system? I think most of you know my feelings about trees and lawns right now. They shouldn't have to compete for water. If you're going to plant a tree in a lawn that has no trees right now, clear out an area that will be a circle as big as possibly the eventual spread of that tree. So if that tree is going to have, say, a 25-foot spread, you want to clear off an area with a diameter of 25 feet, basically 12 and a half feet on either side of the trunk, and mulch that area. Don't grow grass in that area, and that way the sprinklers at least have a chance to water the tree roots, sending them deeper, as opposed to putting them competing for lawn water 
and the lawn's going to win because the roots are much shallower with a lawn, and that's why the tree roots tend to stay shallower. So its own watering system, or at least clear out an area so that it gets more of the lawn irrigation water. All right, so you got a watering system. Now the other thing to consider when you're debating about a tree is, all right, where are the roots going to go? How close are these roots going to be to things like water lines, sewer lines, patios, sidewalks, house or garage foundations? you got to make that consideration. Generally speaking, if you want a shade tree, that means that shade tree is going to be, generally speaking, 35 to 50 feet tall. And for a backyard situation, I would go with the shorter ones, the 35 to 40 foot, as opposed to 50 foot trees, which if they fell, could damage other people's property, holding you responsible. But by keeping that tree, eventual tree height at 25 to 35 feet or 40 feet or so, you're going to have a better chance of having good shade and less problems. And those trees are the ones that usually have a distance recommendation as far as the roots go of 15 feet away from any structures. All right. But you got to think about a tree that if it has a spread of 25 to 35 feet, if in the case of the hedge maple, which was the first one on this list, if you plant it just 15 feet away from the house, those branches are still going to be touching that house in a few years. All right. So you want to plant it so it's not going to be a problem, not only from the roots, but as far as the branches reaching out and tickling the side of your house or doing damage to your roof, rubbing back and forth. You want to limit the amount of pruning you have to do. So you have to take that all into consideration. A good site to help you determine all these tree uh, variables is a site run by Cal Poly San Luis Obispo called Select Tree. And basically, the website is selecttree.calpoly.edu. And if you just Google the phrase uh, Select Tree Cal Poly, the, this uh, great information from the Urban Forest Ecosystems Institute comes up, and you can enter the tree's name, and it tells you all about uh, the tree. Now, for instance, the, the first tree idea was the hedge maple. So looking up the hedge maple, for example, you see that it's going to have an eventual height of 25 to 35 feet, a width of 25 to 35 feet, a growth rate of 12 inches a year. As far as uh, what it needs, as far as uh, moisture goes, moist to dry and well-drained soil. It is susceptible to aphids, root rot, and verticillium. So if you've had problems with aphids or verticillium wilt before, you may have a problem with this because verticillium lives in the soil. The good news is with the hedge maple, root damage potential is rated as low. Among the trees on this list that come highly recommended include the Chinese fringe tree, the Chianthus retussus. The Chinese fringe tree is uh, well regarded uh, for its bloom season, and it does get very good reviews of the people who have grown them, so you may want to consider that. And most of these trees in here are pretty good. Uh, the Little Leaf Linden, the Trident Maple, the Pacific uh, Emerald Sunshine. They, there is no Pacific Emerald Sunshine, maybe Pacific Sunset. Uh, Elm Frontier, the Golden Rain Tree. I don't know about the Golden Rain Tree. The Bloodwood, Bloodgood Japanese Maple. Good choices. And But again, go to that site, the Cal Poly site of Select Tree, and look at the eventual height of the tree. Make sure it's not going to interfere with any power lines over your head. 
and also root invasion uh, possibilities too. So check that uh, select tree site for more information before you go out and plant a tree. All right. Look at all these people lined up. Brooks, you've lined up five people with answers to today's Garden Grappler. Let's get their answers when we come back from this break on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, we have five people lined up. Five people who say they can name a flower you could grow here that begins with a letter from the word September. S-E-P-T-E-M-B-E-R. Take a letter, use it, and that letter is gone. So the next person better have a backup answer. That makes it very tough for caller number five. So caller five will get a bonus prize. Leading off today's competition, it's Mark in Fair Oaks. Hi, Mark. Hi, how you doing? Doing fine. Go ahead, name a flower you could plant uh, in our area that grow that begins with a letter from the word September. Well, I believe in poppies. Yeah, I believe in poppies, too, and you can certainly uh, <laughs> do well here. And uh, that takes care of the P in September, so that leaves us with uh, September. And, uh, Mark, for being smart like that, I'll be sending you... What do we have for everybody today, Fred? We have from Our Water, Our World, their wonderful Planting a Healthy Garden Guide, and also the Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule from the Sacramento County Master Gardeners. So I'll be sending that your way. Excellent. All right, Mark, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. All right. All right, good job. All right, next up, call in number two. It's Christine in Orangevale. Hi, Christine. Hi there. I was just in Orangevale this morning. Yeah, beautiful place. Yes, it is. Uh, Christine, go ahead and uh, give us a flower you could plant that begins with a letter from the word September, but nothing with a P. I'm going to take M, marigold. Marigold, yes, indeed, summer bloomer. Now, for those of you wondering, well, isn't it a little late to plant marigolds? Actually, marigolds are going to last until the first freeze, and or the second freeze, really, and that could be in mid to late November. So if you're looking for some instant color for September and October, into early November, you could go to the nursery and buy some six-packs of marigolds and fill up a container or a planting bed and just have a nice-looking area for the next couple of months. Marigolds, good answer there, so I'll be sending you the uh, Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule as well as the uh, Planting a Healthy Garden Guide, Christine. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. All right. always love the people call in for the Garden Grappler like Gail in Vacaville. Oh, good. Hi, 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 Gail. Go ahead and give us a... uh, a flower you could plant that begins with a letter from the word, what do we have left here? Sataber. I also have a question, but how about sunflower? How about a sunflower? Yes, indeed. Plant that in the spring for a plant that not only looks great, but attracts all sorts of beneficials and pollinators as well. So go ahead. what's your question, Gail? Um, I was interested in putting a giant bird of paradise near my pool. Are they good to have next to a pool? Because I heard that the roots are not good for cement. Uh, how far away is it from the pool itself? From the pool. From the pool. From the pool. Maybe. How, how far? About 10 feet. Oh, 10, 10 oh, that's, feet. Yeah, that's plenty of room. If you've got a, room. If you've got a planting area, and from that planting area, you've got uh, 10 feet of uh, uh, landscaped area, of basically hardscaping, and before you hit the water, 10 feet should be fine. Okay, and then it'd be two feet from the house and right next to the pool cement. Uh, well, it's yeah, but it's the outer edge of your uh, 
patio or your pool cement, right? It's Denning, not. Yes, yes. Yeah. As you know, as long as it, it gets some shade, it should be okay. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Gail, and I'll be sending you uh, the the flower planting schedule from the Master Gardeners, as well as the our water our world uh, information on planting a healthy garden. Perfect. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for calling. Down down to Merced we go. And Donna. Hi, Donna. Hello there. How are you? Doing fine. Let's see. We've used the P, the M, and the S. Go ahead and pick what's remaining from the word September and give us a flower you could plant. How about a rose? September R is a rose. A rose does have a flower. I think of it more as a shrub. Oh, okay. How about uh, Rudbeckia? Rudbeckia, there you go. All right. I mean, you could even have used the B on that one, but Rudbeckia is fine. And if somebody can knows the uh, <laughs> the common name for it, they they may. Uh, I'll give them credit for that. But Rudbeckia, good answer. And there's a lot of varieties of Rudbeckia, and that's a great summer blooming uh, flower that that can come back year after year too. It may just look kind of ratty during the winter time, but it does uh, uh, does put on quite a show in the summer. And uh, good going, Donna. So I'll be sending you all that information. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Donna. Appreciate it. And that brings us to Caller 5. In today's Garden Grappler, it is Michelle in Carmichael. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Farmer Fred. Hi there. So, Michelle, if you can come up with a flower that you could plant that does not begin with an S, an M, a P, or an R... Uh, from the word September, I have for you the 2018 Sacramento County Gardening Guide and Calendar from the Master Gardeners, and an essential garden reference for gardeners in our area, I do believe. Well, being number five, a lot of the good answers have been taken, but I'm going to say the letter T for tulip. Tulip bulbs. Yes, you can certainly plant tulip bulbs in our area, and uh, we're coming up to the time when stores are going to start carrying the bulbs, and a lot of them would benefit from another six weeks of refrigeration and then sticking them in the ground. So basically, yes, it's a flower bulb. Tulips works. You want to press your luck more with another letter just for the heck of it, like an E or an R? No, R's been no. used. So what's left? Oh, yeah. oh gosh. I was, I've been trying to think of a flower with the letter E and... Edelweiss? I don't even know. Actually, Edel, Edelweiss <laughs> begins with an A, but that's a no. It doesn't. No, you're right. No, it does begin with an E, but I'm not even sure what Edelweiss is, other than I'm a song. Sure. I, you know, I'm very new to gardening, and I just started uh, listening to your show, and I'm totally hooked. Well, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I, the only one I know of is Echinacea, so that's okay. But uh, oh, but Michelle, you, you did the job. You got you got it right, and you're the fifth caller, so I'll be sending you that uh, Sacramento County Gardening Guide and Calendar, along with that other information as well. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Appreciate you listening. Thanks. You have a great day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Always good to hear from new uh, listeners who are getting hooked on gardening. It's uh, I know a lot of people give up on gardening. Uh, they try, things die, and they just think they're not cut out for it. Nah, don't give up. They're, I mean, if you follow... Just some simple rules. Most of it's just common sense. Uh, you can be successful. Basically, uh, think of it as a kid that needs some care and not that much care. And what's beautiful now in this day and age of technical advancement, you can have water timers that basically sense soil moisture 
and will only water plants when the soil needs water. And I can tell you from experience that 90% of plant problems are water-related. So the whole idea is to get the right amount of water on a plant. All right. Uh, congratulations to uh, all the people who've won. I, I talked about this uh, maybe earlier today, and I know I talked about it on the KFBK Garden Show, but I think it bears repeating in the a few minutes here about the hot temperatures we are going to be having for the next week of triple-digit temperatures and your containerized plants. And uh, they are the ones that are going to be suffering a lot, other than you if you're crazy enough to work uh, basically any time between now and Saturday. Yeah, basically during the day. But if you're going to work, work early in the day before the temperature gets to above 90. And it looks like it's getting to 90 degrees earlier and earlier uh, this week. Uh, I know today it hit 90 degrees in a lot of parts around Sacramento as early as 10 a.m. So work early, work smart, stay hydrated. Follow the shade around if you can. That always helps. And maybe move your containerized plants into the shade as well. All right. So, uh, you know, think about those containerized plants, especially the small ones that are going to need water quicker. And also another way to protect your containerized plants is to put the plant that's in a container into a bigger container. Maybe it's a cardboard box. That would be okay. But basically something to shield that container from the direct rays of the sun that can raise the temperature inside the soil of that potted plant to 140 degrees, which cooks the roots and causes the soil to pull away from the sides of the pot. So basically, by protecting the pot, you can protect the plant. So maybe you have a bigger pot, and you can put the smaller pot inside the bigger pot. That will offer a lot of protection. And also it provide a bit more circulation um, to the underside of the plant as well. And that's another thing, too. If you don't want to do that, is to raise your containerized plants off a hot surface. Maybe it's a it's a rock surface or concrete that's reflecting heat, something like that. Or heavens forbid, a black asphalt driveway. I always feel sorry for the plants at grocery stores when the displays are out there on the parking lot. And especially on a day like today, uh, that's almost a death wish for those plants. And what you need to do is raise them off the ground to avoid basically being cooked from below like an oven. And so prop them up, maybe on boards, maybe on those little plant stands or plant feet, just to allow some air circulation beneath them to help keep that pot cooler. We'll take a short break. Uh, Oh, the corpse flower. Yeah, the sad saga of the Roseville High corpse flower. We'll be talking about that when we come back to get growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Well, there was a rather interesting story going on at Roseville High School for the past few weeks. I think it was way back when, on August 14th, when excitement began. Science teacher C.J. Addington noted that at their greenhouse there at Roseville High School, Corona was getting set to bloom. The corpse flower, a stinky titan arum. It's a plant that doesn't bloom very often. And this one was truly a titan, around six feet tall. And in past titan arum shows, if you will, 
People would come from miles around just to smell the flower, not because it was pleasant, because it smelled like its name implied, like a corpse. So at the greenhouse, the flower just sort of sat there and sat there and sat there. Delay after delay after delay. It didn't open. Originally, it was scheduled to open on August 17th. Didn't happen. Didn't happen that weekend. You may recall last uh, Sunday, we talked with a, uh, another science teacher out there at Roseville High School. They were waiting. They waited all this week, and finally, uh, they had to do a little CSI. Doing the CSI is the uh, plant curator, if you will, science teacher C.J. Addington, who joins us on the phone. And C.J., wow, this is uh, quite the long saga, and I take it the flower has not opened yet. No. Well, good morning, Fred. It's nice to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, it has been kind of a roller coaster thing, and unfortunately it appears that our flower is already starting to deteriorate, and it never did open. So I think we're going to have to call it a loss this time around. Now, the good news is, though, for those people who did drop by to take a whiff, there is a bit of a whiff even with the flower not open, correct? Yeah. we you know, People were able to put their nose up to it and get a little taste of what the odor is like, and uh, that, that sort of dead fish, rotting garbage kind of smell. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, no one got to experience the full blast of it, which was disappointing. Uh, but they were able to see the plant, which was gorgeous. I mean, it was six foot three. It looked amazing. Uh, they could get a taste of the smell, but, uh, but it never did actually open. Tell us a little bit about the corpse flower itself, Titan Arum. Um, well, you can kind of visualize it as sort of like a gigantic uh, tulip. It grows from a huge bulb underground. Uh, it makes a big flower. Uh, but in this case, because it's not pollinated by bees, um, because it lives in the dark jungles of Sumatra, it's actually pollinated by flies. So it's making an odor that is attractive to flies, uh, and, uh, and it only blooms for one night. So it has to make a big flower with a big stink to attract a lot of flies. So they're quite showy if you can get them to work. Is it the stink that attracts the flies, or is it the, the color of the flower or the pollen that might attract them? I think it's the color and the smell. The the color, when they open, is sort of this liver purple. I mean, it really looks like an old piece of liver or something. <laughs> uh, and then the odor is that, that dead meat odor, and I think that combination between the two of them. Plus, the plant gets hot. You know, when they bloom, they actually raise their internal temperature for one night. So the warmth, the heat, the smell, the color, I think it's a whole combination that pulls the flies in. So Roseville High School, very lucky to have a greenhouse and uh, very lucky to have the Titan Arum. And uh, if I recall correctly, uh, you also had one open back in 2011, but it was nowhere near six feet tall, which this one is. Right, right. We had one in 2011. That was our first bloom that we managed to bring. Um, and that one topped out about three foot one. Um, and, and But in retrospect, you know, and I, I'll kind of tell you why I think this one didn't bloom. In retrospect, the one in 2011 didn't actually open all the way, and I just chalked it up to being, you know, just a small flower. But now I'm beginning to realize that it may have been suffering from the same issue that our current flower is suffering from. Now, before we get to that part of the story, uh, we, I want to point out the, the conflict that you had. Here you had a corpse flower that was about to open. Perhaps thousands of people were coming to see it, and you left town. I know. I know. It seems strange. I mean, the, the idea that somebody would actually miss their own Titan Aram blooming is uh, probably pretty crazy. But you had but a good I, reason. I had a very good reason. You know, I'm also a physics teacher, and it turns out there was a total eclipse of the sun at the same time. 
So, uh, you know, being, you know, the, the, the science geek that I am, uh, there's no way I'm going to miss a total eclipse of the sun. So I actually went to Idaho uh, for the weekend um, to go see the eclipse, which was amazing, by the way. Um, but it meant I had to leave my plant in the hands of uh, my coworkers and other people for a while. So they did a great job uh, and it worked out. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of a kind of a bad choice I had to make there. So you were trying to figure out why this flower is not open, and you called upon the services of Ernesto Sandoval, who, by the way, is speaking to the Organic Garden Club of Sacramento Friday at 10 a.m. on the benefits of plant hormones, which I don't think has anything to do with this situation, but maybe it does. Uh, He's the collections manager at the UC Davis Botanical Conservatory, and you checked in with him, and what did he say? Well, when I first started contacting him, I mean, his initial thought was that the greenhouse was too cool at night because that seems to be a common problem with a lot of people and, and their Titan arms. Um, so I checked it, but we actually have a, a gas heater on a thermostat in there. So that wasn't really the issue. I mean, the greenhouse was plenty warm at night, and, you know, we had the humidity going. Uh, everything seemed to be perfect and couldn't figure out what the problem was. And what we finally realized, and this is one of those duh moments that in retrospect seems obvious, um, there's a campus security light that comes on at night, and shines right on the top of the greenhouse. And so the flower was actually brightly illuminated 24-7, either by sunlight or by this campus security light. And we think that's what actually stopped it from flowering. As a science teacher, you could explain to your students exactly that, that plants need that period of darkness in order to set bloom. Exactly. You know, and it, it kind of reminds me now, it's a lot like trying to get like a Christmas cactus to bloom or a poinsettia or something. Um, there are certain plants that won't flower unless they have a certain amount of uninterrupted darkness. Uh, you know, if you shine a light on your Christmas cactus in the middle of the night, it won't set flower. And so I'm beginning to think that titanariums or corpse flowers may be more related to Christmas cactuses than I had originally realized. And I'm thinking that this may actually be a serious problem that needs to be addressed next time around. Now, you had a, a YouTube feed where people could uh, watch this in real time uh, unfold and I noticed that in your greenhouse, you did have some sort of a shade cloth over the plant. It looked like a, a white uh, shade cloth. Is, is that right? Well, yes. The shade cloth was actually just to keep the direct midday sun off the plant. Um, I just didn't want the little tips of the, uh, the spades and things to get dried out. Um, so that was just kind of like a, a, a sun, sun blocker for the middle of the day. Uh, but the it's hard to notice it, you know, from the video, but on the other side of the greenhouse, on the building side of the greenhouse, that's where the security light is. And I think the tip is, you know, for those people who are watching the streaming video, if you went in and looked at it at night, you realize that the plant was actually brightly illuminated. And, I mean, in retrospect, that shouldn't have been happening. It should have been sitting there in darkness. Uh, but you could practically read a newspaper in there at night. So that, I think that was the problem. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that nobody left a comment there on YouTube who who might question that light. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm even kicking myself for it. I mean, I, I've grown, you know, Christmas cactuses and things before, so it seems like I wish I had, like, put the two together sooner. Um, I mean, of course, once we realized what the possible problem was, one of our uh, maintenance guys, you know, very nicely went up on the ladder and took the light bulb out. Uh, but I think by the time we did that, it was too late. We'd already missed the the window of opportunity, and now the flower is actually starting to deteriorate. So I think the window passed on that, unfortunately. What is the next uh, step in this process? Well, 
the that particular plant is probably just going to abort that flower. Uh, and but the plant's not dead; there's still the underground bulb, so it'll regrow from the bulb, from the bulb and make new leaves, start the cycle over. Uh, and we actually do have two other corpse flowers that are also waiting in the wings. Um, I've got a, a 20-pound bulb and an 18-pound bulb that are probably not more than just a couple years away from flowering. So I'm hoping to get another bloom again soon, and this time I will make sure that it gets a really strong day-night light day cycle. School security may take exception to, to you unscrewing their light bulb and their security light, so do you plan on covering the plant? Uh, actually, they were very nice about taking the bulb out. I mean, it's just the one bulb, you know, the one security light over the greenhouse. Uh, and uh, they were happy to take it down. But I think I'm also, next time around, going to think about either using some kind of combination of shading, either, you know, block all outside light, and then I might even use some supplemental lights on timers uh, just to really emphasize the, you know, 12-hour day, 12-hour night, make sure it's got a really strong uh, day-night cycle to get its circadian rhythm going. And then I'm hoping that that will uh, do the trick next time. As you pointed out in your open letter to everyone interested in this, you point out science can be messy and sometimes disappointing, but it's a journey of discovery, and you can learn more from failure than from success. Mm -hmm. Well, as a science teacher, you know, I I do a lot of labs and experiments, and I know, you know, I've certainly seen my share of failed experiments, Uh, but you can learn a lot from a failed experiment. And I'm kind of viewing this as, uh, even though it was a disappointment, I still learned a lot, and people got to see a great flower, and I'm going to still chalk it up as a success, and now I know what to do differently next time. So uh, I'm going to try to bring another one to bloom as soon as I can, and now I think I know a little bit more about how to make sure it actually opens and you know, so people can see it. So I'm, I'm counting as a success, and I'm looking forward to the next one. And the rest of us are as well. C.J. Addington, science teacher out at Roseville High School, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Coming up, Labor Day weekend, Saturday and Sunday, September 2nd and 3rd, the Camellia Koi Club is having their 2017 Koi Show, A Taste of Excellence. What is Koi? Where is it going to be? Let's talk with Georgia Vonk. She's with the Camellia Koi Club. And Georgia, the venue for this year's Camellia Koi Club show is rather unique. Yes, sir. We're having it at the old sugar mill, which we figured was a lovely place. It's next to the water, fish-like water. And, of course, it has wineries, and we all love wineries. So it seemed like a great combination. All right. The old sugar mill is an old beet sugar refinery that's been converted to wineries over in Clarksburg. And if I'm uh, correct, the address is 35265 Willow Avenue. In Clarksburg, yes, sir. All right. And uh, are you charging anything? Can you park for free? It's free entrance, free parking. Um, of course, it's a not-for-profit, and we'd like to make a donation. We'd appreciate it, but it's not necessary. Uh, we will be having raffles, and not just fish-related things. We have all kinds of artwork and all kinds of fun stuff, so people might win something as well. And you have to buy your own wine, though. Yeah, they'll be selling buying that at the winery. But the winery told us that you can buy your wine up there, and you can walk all over the grounds and drink it there. 
You don't have to wait to get home to enjoy it. Now, besides being a fun event, it's a rather educational event, too, because you have uh, koi experts to explain the koi raising hobby to anybody who's interested. That's correct. We actually have judges there. They'll explain about judging fish. It's basically kind of like showing horses and dogs. There's confirmation and color patterns and things such as that. And they're judged by size. Little guys, you know, under four inches all the way up to things will be over three feet long. We have some size nine fish coming in. Tell us a little bit about the koi itself. Is it just a goldfish on steroids? <laughs> no, actually, it's a carp. <laughs> Not related to goldfish at all. Um, basically, the Japanese people raised their own rice, and for protein, they would raise carp in the uh, patties, the, the uh, rice patties. And then they found some that had color on them. Some were red, some were black, got the white. And then they started breeding for color. And then they became gifts to royalty. And then they kind of went from there. Now they're all over the world. Is it fairly easy to raise koi? They are. They're pretty hardy fish. I mean, it, it, but it's basically water control that you're, you know, water quality that you need to be concerned about. They're pretty hardy. They'll they'll stand up, but they're not as hardy as a wild carp because uh, of the interbreeding and things. So you just got to take care of your water quality and make sure that they don't have a bunch of parasites and things like that. And they're very, very enjoyable. They're, they have personalities. They'll lead out of your hand. You know, they're just really kind of cool guys. They take care of us and kind of actually take care of themselves. Now, I would think that at a koi show, besides uh, beautiful fish and everything you need to, to raise koi, there's going to be everything uh, that has to do with waterscaping at a show like this. You probably have pond builders, fountains, uh, landscape, and other vendors. We have the different vendors that are coming in, um, and they can take you anywhere from doing just a backyard landscape thing without the fish up to a big, huge koi pond, the order, things that are needed to keep your fish happy. And the homeowner happy, too. Well, yeah, because I can't tell you how many homeowners have built a hole in the ground and found that that didn't work, and four or five holes in the ground later, they finally got it where the fish were happy, and so were they, but not necessarily their pocketbook. So do it right the first time. Talk with the experts at the Camellia Koi Club's 2017 Koi Show, A Taste of Excellence. It's happening Saturday and Sunday, September 2nd and 3rd, Labor Day weekend, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday, 11 to 3 on Sunday. It's going to be at the old sugar mill, the old beet sugar refinery that's been converted to wineries in Clarksburg at 35265 Willow Avenue. Free admission, free parking if you want more information. I imagine a good website to visit, Georgia, would be org. That's correct. And if everybody will see, there's some ads on there showing, you know, advertising the show. If you print it out or bring it to us on your cell phone, you'll get a free raffle ticket. There you go. It's happening September 2nd and 3rd. Get into the koi habit, folks. Georgia Vonk of the Camellia Koi Society, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you so much, Fred, and please come down and join us. We'd love to have you. Some other garden events you may want to take advantage of. Well, one other garden event, because next weekend is Labor Day weekend, there's not a whole heck of a lot going on other than that koi show. But on Friday, the Organic Gardening Club of Sacramento will meet in Carmichael Park. Uh, they're in the clubhouse at 5750 Grant Avenue. It's a 10 a.m. Uh, meeting. And Ernesto Sandoval is going to be talking about the benefits of plant hormones. We uh, talked about Ernesto earlier when we were discussing the uh, corpse flower with C.J. Addington. 
So Ernesto has uh, been on the horticultural scene for uh, many, many years out there at UC Davis, and uh, he'll be talking about the benefits of plant hormones at the Organic Garden Club of Sacramento's Friday meeting at 10 a.m., and that is free. All right. Uh, oh, you know, I'm looking at some of these rain totals that are happening right now down in Texas. It's crazy. It's just, I mean, that hurricane that became a tropical storm that will become a tropical depression, Harvey, is uh, just dumping rain. It has stalled and is just dumping massive amounts of rain. Now, here are some rain totals in the Houston area and uh, that area of Texas for the last uh, three days from basically a Thursday evening until now. Uh, Dayton, Texas, 27 inches of rain. South Houston, 24 inches of rain. Uh, let's see here. LaGrange, 18 inches. Pasadena, Texas, 17 inches of rain. And what's amazing, too, are the wind gusts that they had when that hurricane did blow through as a Cat 4. Uh, they had winds in Port Aransas of 132 miles an hour. They had gusts in uh, Lamar of 110, in Rockport, 108 miles an hour. So just one heck of a storm, and we're thinking about you down there in Texas. Um, and you've got days of rain ahead of you down there as well. So good luck. Stay safe. All right, KSTE Farm Hour coming up in just a few minutes. On today's uh, thrill-packed episode, uh, we talk about uh, everybody who's suing the state <laughs> as far as the Delta Tunnels go. There's, uh, I think the last count, I, I think it's up to 70 groups that have filed suit against the state of California to stop the Delta Tunnels project. The thing is, these lawsuits don't really stop projects when they use CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. They just slow down the process. However, the big hitch in the giddy app for the Delta Tunnels is going to be financing because there's a lot of groups that are balking at uh, paying the bills that will be associated with the Delta Tunnels. Anyway, some more about the Delta Tunnels coming up. The state's Department of Pesticide Regulation is going to institute more restrictions on the use of of a widely used farm pesticide known as chlorpyrifos. And chlorpyrifos is an insecticide that is uh, used extensively, and there will be more restrictions put on by the state. We have uh, the reasoning of why the state's doing that and also reasons why farmers want to keep using it. Up in Oregon, there's this huge Japanese beetle infestation. Oh, does that have California's farmers and nursery industry people concerned? You bet it does, and we'll talk about that. And also, we'll talk about what Bear Crop Science is doing to help California's ag industry farm a bit more sustainably. And so that's coming up on the KSTE Farm Hour next week. Debbie Flower pays us a visit as we talk gardening here on Get Growing every Sunday from 10 a.m. to noon. Now in its 25th year, go figure. Miracles do happen. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your support all these years of listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE.